everybody. Today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Joel Zinberg. He is a physician and an attorney. He got his law degree from Yale and his medical degree from Columbia. Uh, he is also had an economic degree from Swarthmore. Uh, he and I uh, sort of were around the same kinds of institutions at around the same time, so I'll be interested in talking to him. He is, amongst other things, a fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Inter uh, Institute, a native New Yorker who uh, recently completed two years as general counsel and senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors in the executive office of the president. He wrote an article that caught my attention in the Wall Street Journal. The FDA wants to interfere in the practice of medicine. Apparently, a little-known provision in the omnibus bill is going to make it impossible to practice medicine, essentially, because they're going to forbid us from doing what our judgment calls us to do for our patients. You'll have to see um, what he has to say about that. And I've got many other things and many other concerns to bring to him, and we will do it right after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And as always, we are out on Twitter Spaces and we'll be watching you at the uh, at the. Restream as well as the Rumble Rants, where you guys are kind of quiet now, but Susan will be there monitoring you guys. Uh, Dr. Zinberg is what we call a overachiever. In addition to his uh, Yale Law School and Columbia Medical degree, he became a cancer surgeon and uh, spent 30 years at Mount Sinai, where he was an associate clinical professor of surgery. Been involved with health policy, uh, law, and medicine for his entire career. Taught for 10 years at Columbia. Uh, and was a law school lecturer at the law school, taught a course in legal policy and ethical issues surrounding organ transplantation. And he's been with the State Board of Professional Medical Mis Medical Conduct and on Mount Sinai's Ethics Committee, so we can get into all that stuff we normally got into with Dr. Cariotti. Uh, please welcome Dr. Joel Zinberg. Dr. Zinberg, welcome. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the article. I've got a million things that are gonna come to mind for me to ask you about, and I apologize if it's a bit of a Rorschach, but um, your, your training and expertise is in things I've been thinking a lot about these days, um, not the least of which is now that we are confronted in California with AB 2098, where it is uh, essentially risking our license to discuss anything as it pertains to COVID vaccine 
COVID treatment that is outside of so-called standard of care, we could lose our license. And uh, having been through the opioid pandemic, I was uh, fighting against the standard of care for more than a decade and watched it kill thousands of people. So I, my, I bristle when anybody uh, sort of mandates standard of care cooperation, but be that as it may. Let's start with your article. The FDA wants to interfere in the practice of medicine. Tell us what you were thinking there. Well, so, you know, most people have heard of the fact that this was an enormous bill, 4,150 pages. It's going to spend $1.7 trillion. But they didn't know that there are 19 lines in there. It's about page 3,000 something or other uh, that could potentially change the way we practice medicine. Uh, and the reason I say that is because they now are going to try to restrict the utilization of medical devices if the FDA decides that they don't want you to use it for that particular purpose. And prior to that, the uh, Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act had been pretty clear that the once something is approved, the FDA would not regulate the practice of medicine. You could use it for anything you liked. And, and they were very clear they were not going to interfere in the practice of medicine. Uh, and this is an attempt to change that. And it's, a, it's in response to a particular case, which if you like, I can get into. Uh, but it's a very disturbing trend that I think is going to interfere with the physician-patient relationship. It's going to interfere with patient autonomy. And it's going to interfere with medical innovation. I would argue that uh, the trend has been underway for some time, and we are now underwater of the tsunami of what our practice, our profession has become. So just to clarify for listeners, the FDA has nothing to do with the practice of medicine other than what companies are allowed to bring to market and under what conditions. What we then do with them are based on our training, our experience, our judgment, and what's best for the patient. That's it, period. Now, and, and it's very common for us to use off-label medication of all types for all kinds of situations. Now they want to get in the middle of all that. And I, you know, when COVID hit, one of the really interesting things I noticed was that there was a distinct difference between my surgical colleagues like yourself and the medical folks, the so-called cognitive practices, in that the cognitive practices all froze in place. They just froze and took all orders from on high. And all my surgical colleagues who are accustomed to making their own decisions when they open the surgical field, improvising, doing what's right, no one interferes once the surgical field is presented to the surgeon. This, that's always been the domain of the surgeons. This though, if you're saying they're gonna to start to mess with how we apply medical devices, this is their way, finally they found their way in to the world of surgery. Well, yeah, look, this is uh, a situation that is very troublesome because I think it's not going to simply be medical devices. Once this precedent is set, uh, I think the FDA is then going to try to expand it to the use of drugs. And the fact of the matter is of course. that of course. one in five prescriptions in this country are written for off-label use. And just so your viewers understand what that means, when the FDA approves a drug, it approves labeling for a specific indication. Uh, and it may be more than one indication, but there's always at least one indication. Uh, and when you use it for a, a use or an indication that's not part of that label, 
That's called off-label uses. But there's nothing that restricts your use of that. There never has been. And in specifically within the statute, there is a section that's applicable to devices that says they will not interfere with the practice of medicine. You can use devices off-label. And what this new 19 lines does to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act is it repeals that section. It now says if the FDA decides that something is too risky or it's not effective, et cetera, they can ban that use. Uh, and and I, I would suggest that, that that's really an awful situation because we, uh, it, it creates a possible chilling effect. It's going to keep people from utilizing things when they discern a potentially beneficial use because they're worried that somewhere down the line, the FDA is going to come along and say, you know, you shouldn't have been using that. Uh, and then people will be somehow penalized for that. Uh, and, and, it, and that's how medicine advances. We, we look at existing drugs. We say, hey, this might work in this other setting. Let me try that. When you do try that, you say it worked, and you and your colleagues may try it one or two more times. And if it seems to be efficacious uh, without too many side effects, you then try utilizing it in studies. And when you complete and publish those studies, people begin to realize that maybe this is good and that can become the standard of care. And that's incredibly common in, in fields like oncology, uh, in fields like pediatrics. In, in oncology, most of the standard treatments are drugs that are off-label or combinations of drugs that are off-label. And in pediatrics, where it's too uh, expensive and difficult to conduct studies because of various federal regulations, they're using drugs that were approved for adults in pediatric population all the time. So do you really want to chill that? Do you want to create a situation where uh, a drug that or a device that we know is approved for one use but would be helpful, maybe even uh, essential in another use, it is banned. And, and, you know, this all comes out of this case, Judge Rottenberg Center uh, versus the FDA. It's a, a 2021 case in the uh, District of Columbia Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit, uh, where the FDA had published a rule in 2020 that banned the use of an electrical stimulation device that was used by the center for self-abusive patients, people who were doing things like banging their heads or biting themselves, mutilating themselves. And this was the only effective treatment that could keep them from doing it. The FDA published this rule, and then the center and the parents and families of these patients had to go to court even though they had told the FDA this is the only thing that's effective, they had to go to court to get the court to strike down that FDA rule because it was very clear in the statute that they were allowed to use this off-label. Meanwhile, the FDA had continued to allow its use in multiple other areas all sorts of, to treat all sorts of addictions like smoking and drug use, uh, but they wanted to ban it for this one use where it was the only treatment that these families found was effective in keeping their loved ones from hurting themselves. So I'm, I'm just concerned with where this is all coming from and trying to understand what we are into here. Do you think that some of the reason for somebody thinking this was a good idea, do you think it had something to do with the black eye that many suffered for trying to repurpose 
medications, which I literally cannot name today because if I name them, I will get uh, banned by YouTube. That's how much energy there is around these certain medicines that were being repurposed and medicines that have been used for, I've used a million times. And um, now suddenly that became this weird political phenomenon. Do you think, I, Caleb has, has to actually push up on the screen here in front of me that these things are not effective in the treatment of COVID because you didn't even put their name out, Caleb. I'm not going to mention yeah, you, the name. You can't say know, the name, but I can put it in a disclaimer. So those are the rules. Okay, put in the disclaimer. <laughs> All right. Uh, but my question is, did that create the energy around which people like the FDA felt they had to now begin to determine bureaucratically how medicine is practiced? That somehow that was such a a uh, dangerous move that people had made uh, that, that something like that, an off-label use of a substance that is so dangerous could never happen again. Well, uh, no, I don't. I think that's part of the story, but I think the bigger story is the FDA tries in many ways. And by the way, the, I think the FDA is in most regards is an admirable organization that most people in this country admire and it does a good job. But they have tried in multiple areas to control use of drugs and devices, to control how medicine is practiced. Uh, and this was not the only instance. And by the way, th this effort to control this particular device started in 2016 when uh, the FDA first proposed uh, banning this device. And it took them till 2020 to do it. Um, so, what do I mean by that? I mean, for example, uh, there are, we found out early in the pandemic, there are things called laboratory developed tests, which is when a, an academic laboratory, like my hospital, Mount Sinai, like University of Washington, these, they came up with tests for COVID. Uh, and there's an ambiguity in the law about who regulates these laboratory developed tests. Uh, the FDA has always insisted that they have the right to do it, but those tests are actually uh, developed, uh, regulated under another branch of the law by a different agency, under a law called CLIA. Uh, and the laboratories have always said, look, we are uh, allowed under CLIA to develop these tests. We are reputable organizations. We're filled with high-powered academics. They've done, generally speaking, a very good job. They had all of these tests ready to go in February of 2020. Uh, and the FDA insisted that it was going to, instead of looking the other way, which it regularly does for these tests, that now that you actually had a real emergency use for these tests to test for COVID, it said, no, you can't use those tests. You've got to use the CDC test, uh, which has been developed, which took an entire month for people to realize was a flawed test. So we had basically no test in this country for a month at the outset of the pandemic because the FDA and the CDC were trying to sort of assert this authority to control everything. Uh, you know, you, you have other areas like this limits on off-label use. For example, the FDA has always insisted that drug companies or their representatives can't pr uh, promote or even talk about off-label uses, even if everything they say is true. And this was the subject of a 2012 lawsuit in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, which is in New, happens to be located in New York, 
where the FDA had had actually criminally convicted a, a drug company representative who was talking to a physician and mentioned an off-label use, even though everything this physician said was true. And the court struck down that conviction saying it's a violation of the First Amendment, that they cannot regulate if everything he says, the representative says is true and is not misleading. So this is all of a piece in, I think, the agency's efforts to control things. And it's just one area where I think they've kind of overstepped uh, initially, they overstepped the statute. Now that the statute's been amended, uh, they, I, I think, are overstepping common sense. And, you know, if, if you want to talk about the two drugs which I, uh, you were talking about there, which sort of like Lord Voldemort, they have not speak their names. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of the, you know, this was actually an illustration of the system working. People were desperate at the outset of the pandemic for drugs that would work. And they had a hypothesis about these drugs. These drugs had been used in other instances where you wanted to depress the immune response. And that was initially seen to be the problem with COVID. People had a very exuberant immune response. That was caused, that sort of inflammation was what was causing uh, many of the medical problems, even leading to death. And these drugs had been used in that setting. Uh, before. So there was a reason to try them. It wasn't some crazy guy coming uh, out of uh, the forest and deciding, let's try to use these. There was a reason. They People attempted to use them. There were studies. And when studies came out and seen that the drugs probably don't work. So, you know, people stopped prescribing them. Uh, and this is exactly how medicine advances. You, you f- have an intuition, you form a hypothesis, you test out that hypothesis, and you either accept it or reject it. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And and I've I've been saying for quite some time that you know clinical is what leads the research. We've gotten in this time in the the I, the world of evidence based medicine, which ev- everything has to have an evidence basis before you are allowed, so to speak, to use this in a clinical setting. And my, my question would be, is this really, again, part of a process that's been going on for a long time where insurance companies have been dictating what we can do with patients and for how long? Now hospitals have set up with evidence-based pathways, clinical pathways that must be followed. Physicians are being trained algorithmically, not trained to think critically, improvise, think outside the box, use scientific method. None of that is any longer prioritized in the process. And quite, in fact, it seems to be actively suppressed in some way. And isn't this really just part of that tyranny of what started as something relatively benign, evidence-based medicine? Well, look, you know, the, the, when you look back and see how the FDA evolves, and it's been evolving for over a century, you see that there's an incremental uh, advancement of their powers over time. So they started you know, back in 1906, there's a, a drug, first drug act, they have very limited powers. Then in the 30s, 1938, the original Food and Drug Act, they, they gain powers to uh, regulate for safety purposes. Then in, in the 70s, they gain power to regulate for efficacy purposes. And arguably, those are good things in the sense that up until that point in time, you had 
proliferation of ineffective and often dangerous uh, medications and things coming to market. And, and, and in fact, many of those statutory additions were in response to sort of catastrophes that happened. So the 1976 was in, in response to thalidomide. Uh, and there was, there was uh, a, a um, problem in the 30s with a, a sulfonamide uh, preparation that was performed. There was basically antifreeze in it hundreds of people died. So it's not that these were unimportant additions or that there should be no regulation. But the question is, once the thing is on the market, you've made a determination that the thing is, I would argue the most important thing is that it's safe. Uh, but they've added efficacy, that's fine. But once you've made that determination, let the process then go forward that people have some uh, professional autonomy to make these advancements. I mean, at the end of the day, who do you trust more to make the medical decisions? Do you trust them, uh, agency bureaucrats in Washington, or should a, a patient trust their physician? Because they are making these decisions in concert. They're trying to decide what's best for me in my particular circumstance. And if you're in a circumstance where, let's say, nothing has worked, uh, and you now are casting about for a, a solution, and the physician says, you know, maybe this, this worked in this other setting. Can't we try it here? Let's see. Are you okay with that? The patient says, yes. Why should the government be intervening in that sort of situation? And, and you know, that's, that's really what we're, we're looking at here. And, and it's, you know, there was others who agree that this is a problem. I mean, Senator Johnson, uh, Ron Johnson, has introduced a uh, Right to Treat Act that would actually it's very explicit. It bans the any federal agency from interfering with the practice of medicine, uh, and it you know saying that they can't regulate uh, the use of a, a approved drug if it's going to be used off label. That's the sort of thing I think would be helpful if we're able to get that enacted. That sounds like uh, finally a little bit of pushback. But moving away from the FDA again, do you agree with me that a lot of this is this algorithmic infringement that started as a good idea as evidence-based medicine and just became something that the insurance, the insurers, the hospital administrators, and eventually the educators used as a, as a cudgel and something that's actually taken over and away from how we were trained? Well, I think... You know, I think these things become sort of slogans, sort of like a virtue signaling in medicine. Like I'm, I'm only following mm -hmm. the science. This is evidence-based or this is value-based care. And all the things, you know, for example, the, uh, if you're talking about value-based care, almost all of the proposals and trials in that area have proved to be failures. Everyone, you know, it sounds like something should be great. Who could be against value-based care? Of course, I want to only promote treatments that are good value for patients and, and better value than some other type of treatment. But in the end, the sorts of things like accountable care organizations and all sorts of experimentations uh, and, and HMOs and things like that, they end up not panning out. They, they give inferior care and they don't save money. They, they don't do what they're advertised, even though in theory they sounded good. And in fact, they are in many cases the exact opposite of evidence-based or scientifically-based care because they're adopted 
with no testing. They're adopted as if, you know, it's obvious these would work. And that's exactly what we decided to go away from in the 20th century in medicine. We decided to be more scientifically based. But to be scientifically based, it requires that you give people some freedom. It requires that you allow them to use their initiative. It requires that you allow them to experiment is the wrong word, but to at least advance some interesting ideas and then Im test. Improvise. Improvise. Improvise exactly. is the word. That's what you're doing. But right. I mean, I'm hearing no you. You, you've, you've spent too much time with your surgical colleagues. You need to reach across to the ICU and see what's going on on medicine where everything is dictated by bureaucracy. They aren't, they aren't permitted to use their judgment. Yeah. But I can tell you, for example, one of the, the examples I cited in the Wall Street Journal article uh, of an off-label use was erythromycin. So erythromycin, your viewers might know, is an antibiotic. But people began to notice that it increases uh, stomach, gastric motility. And it's used all the time in ICUs to, uh, it, to advance motility, keep people from having things, you know, regurgitate back up and to facilitate oral feeding. So that's an example of, of a, a, something that's used off-label because people were aware of this, what maybe seemed initially like a side effect, but then they said, hey, let's figure out a way to use this for a beneficial purpose. Uh, another example mm -hmm. I gave is, is rituximab, which is a drug that's used uh, for lymphoma, which is a malignant condition of cancer, but it's now used for benign hematological conditions. You want to encourage people to have the initiative uh, to, to look and see where else these things might be used without having to uh, resort to going back to the FDA and saying, Oh, please, after 10 years of studies and millions of dollars, can I use it for this other indication? Right, R right, exactly. So uh, I'm going to ask you to step even further away from the FDA for a second and wonder if you have any opinion about the bill here in California that I mentioned at the opening, AB 2098, or, or if you have any familiarity or if you'd like me to basically give you the provisions of that, that uh, bill. Well, you, you, you can fill me in on exactly what you're asking. That would be helpful. So we, this is a new bill signed by our governor that uh, the Board of Medical Quality Assurance here in California can take punitive actions, including removing the license of physicians who are found to have offered any opinion or discussion in informed consent that wasn't specifically laid out by the standard of care as specified by the CDC. So if, for instance, if you had a 35-year-old patient and you were to say, you know, the CDC recommends you get this, they're saying it's safe and effective, they mandate you get this, but you know, I've seen some supraventricular arrhythmias and I'm concerned, I'm watching, I've never seen anybody having severe problems from COVID, but just want you to know that part of the informed consent is I see this thing evolving that may be a problem, I would lose my license for doing that. Right. No, this is what I thought you were talking about. Yes. No, I, I've actually written about this and I think it's a tremendous step backwards. Uh, and aside from the fact that, you know, what becomes the standard of care? How do we define standard of care? In this country, it's generally defined at the state level and states uh, have different standards, particularly for malpractice purposes. But generally speaking, it's what would a reasonable physician uh, say? And another standard is what would a reasonable patient want to know? And that may not be what the CDC says. And in fact, 
if we've learned anything through the pandemics, the CDC has been way behind the curve. They've been inaccurate often, they've been misleading often, and they've done a terrible job communicating things. And they've, so, you know, things like school masking uh, and failure to uh, acknowledge that there's something called natural immunity after you got COVID uh, and that the natural immunity was just as good. Uh, in, and in some cases, some studies even better than the vaccine immunity. CDC has has really fallen down here, and and to set them up as the arbiter of what is the standard of care is awful. And and the reality is, medical practice is difficult. Each patient is different; they have specific circumstances. And for example, if you were a pediatrician talking to a child's parents, and you wanted to tell them whether you think they ought to get the COVID vaccine or not, you have to be well able to say just the things you were talking about, that, hey, CDC recommends this. However, we know that COVID is almost, uh, almost 100% a mild disease in children. And unless, if you have a healthy child who doesn't have underlying medical conditions, the risk of COVID is, is minuscule for you. Why shouldn't you be allowed to say that without risking your license? So I think that is a terrible, terrible situation. I mean, the CDC has been promoting things like childhood vaccines and COVID with virtually no evidence that it's helpful. Yeah, and I, I had a, the good fortune of speaking to the president of the Board of Medical Quality Assurance, and she was a, an attorney. She was lovely. She Her dad was a urologist, and she was very reassuring. But I woke up the next morning thinking, yeah, until somebody else steps into her position, they have this law to use however they wish. And the other thing, I, I have seen many circumstances across my career where the standard of care was established by really outlying evangelists. Uh, and again, I always point at the opiate crisis as the, where that started. We had people in pain medicine that believed they were saving the world from all pain. They got the VA's ear. They invented pain as the fifth vital sign. The Joint Commission followed the VA, the hospital boards, the state boards followed the JACO, and all of a sudden, assessing a pain scale was more important than pulse because of some evangelist way downstream who were believed they were doing almost a religious, uh, had a religious cause to uh, yeah, well, uh, obviate more, pain in this country. And more What's importantly, that? the... And more importantly, the result of that is an opioid crisis. You had right, and that was the standard of care. Standard of right, that was the standard. Remember of care. the standard. If you didn't follow that. You were doing wrong. You were in, you were actually discard. You not only were you encouraged to write, you were penalized if you didn't do if you didn't follow that standard of care. If you didn't write enough pain medications and and. All of the incentives, and, and this is what I think a lot of people who make health policy in Washington don't understand, and it's something I was very privileged when I was at the Council of Economic Advisors to work with health economists who really did understand this, is that you have a lot of unintended consequences when you make these policies that seem to make a lot of sense uh, you know, in, in theory, but in fact don't work. And what was the incentive structure? In the pain is the fifth vital sign, uh, the incentive and part of that process was they would ask patients, were you asked about pain? 
Were you satisfied with the amount of pain medicine you received? So what message does that send to practitioners? It sends, says, be very liberal prescribing your pain medicine. That's the incentive. That's oh. the unintended effect. And the unintended, and then as a result, we had, we're sloshing around with opioids, and then you have an opioid crisis. Standard of care was you left with 60 pills in your pocket. That was the standard of care, whether you're, whether it's dental office, internist office, ER, whatever it was. But they were, um, there was, you know, you say there was punitive. There, there was terrible punitive. That This is what happens is the regulatory bodies and the professional agencies adopt the standard of care. And so now I running a chemical dependency program in a freestanding psychiatric hospital, fully accredited when Jayco comes in and my heroin addicts three days into heroin withdrawal have a unhappy face. They demand I give the heroin addict opiates, demand it. And then I get hit by the department of mental health, the hospital, the insurer, the state board all come in because a heroin addict in withdrawal does not have a big happy face in, in, in their misery. Uh, and, and this is the level of insanity that we had going there. Uh, and that, that was just on my unit. The other insanity was whenever my opiate addicted patients, when they were brought, you know, gaffed on board and were doing well and sober, were taken out without exception by our peers. That's how they died for 10 years all around me. Our peers killing them by practicing the standard of care. So on one hand... I'm trying to do something that violates the standard of care because it's so insane. And on the other hand, the standard of care is killing patients by the, by the thousands just around me. Uh, and so I, I, have, I absolutely bristle when people bring up the standard of care. I think it, it's, it's a disgusting standard that, that can't, be, can't be allowed in our practice. But physicians have become so used to becoming algorithm followers, you know, employees, bureaucrats. They're not like you guys in surgery, who no one has interfered with in the in the OR yet, <laughs> but we we oh, are I mean, interfered with every minute. Well, how you? Well, I know that I know <laughs> there's you know technical details of what how you do your procedures and getting somebody to the OR is a whole other thing, and what you do afterwards. Yes, I know that's all controlled, but the point is that you at least have some autonomy and ability to improvise that's being eroded everywhere. And and it's it's used. The defense is well. There's not an evidence basis to it, and I, which is another thing I've seen as somebody working in addiction medicine. I've seen the evidence basis and the fads come and go for the based on evidence basis, and I've seen people get hurt by evidence based medicine over and over and over again. And so it's again, pardon me if I don't enthusiastically run to follow all evidence based medicine immediately, and but you're being forced to. Right. No, but look, I think the bigger problem here is the so-called evidence-based medicine is not really evidence-based. Um, and this, right. this goes for, unfortunately, a lot of the fads we're seeing now uh, it, it, that are, are being forced down our throat in medicine. Uh, someone gets a bright yes. idea, they may publish a small article, uh, and then suddenly everyone cites that same article over and over again. I mean, and, and going back to the, the pain thing, but, you know, the, the original, push to prescribe more pain medicine was essentially started by a case report with about a dozen patients, uh, which was a poorly conducted case report on top of that. But that's what started this whole push. Uh, well, the, the, actual, the actual start, if I, could, if I could interrupt, 
was the Porter and Jick letter to the editors at the New England Journal. It wasn't even a study. It was a letter to the editor. And the Porter and Jick letter was quoted millions of times, and it was nothing. It was zero. Then there was a study that was also a zero study. It was the one I think you're referring to, where, yes, while treated in the hospital, people didn't develop addiction. Yes, we got that. that that's we all pretty clear on that. Uh, but that became the basis for the evangelist, though. Again, it's the it's somebody in there gets it in there. Doctors shouldn't have religious views. I, correct me. I, they shouldn't feel religiously about their views. They can have religious views all day, but they shouldn't. They should not. There should be no. I, I don't know else to describe it. I just call it evangelism. If physicians who are evangelizing cause trouble. It, it really goes bad almost every time. And I, look, we had evangelists for lockdowns in the COVID situation, and it harmed people, a lot of people. And nobody was able to, and they got control of the governors and the regulators, and all of a sudden, all that was going wrong with kids and schools, big no issue. And no, not at all clear that that evangelist was right. But because she was an evangelist, she was able to go out and convince people on the political and regulatory side. That's how we get into trouble well, in medicine today, yeah, it seems there, to me. No, no question that that um, there was a push to turn this into a single standard that would be dictated from Washington, uh, and that this was what everyone should follow. And the fact of the matter is, you you know, multiple studies, including one that I have forthcoming uh, with my colleague at CEI and at the Paragon Health Institute, where I'm the director of the uh, public health and well-being, is going, shows that the states that did less aggressive measures did as well health-wise as the states that, like California and New York, that were extreme in their lockdown measures. So you did no better health-wise, but you crippled the economy you kept kids out of school with resulting huge decreases in their test scores. And that's something that's not going to go away. It's going to impair these kids' lives. They're going to earn less over their lifetime. They'll have less achievement over their lifetime, all because someone decided this is the way to go based on no studies. And, they, and the studies, and, the, and it was based on computer models that themselves were completely flawed. And people pointed this out very early on, uh, but no one would listen. And when you had people like Jay Bhattacharya and the people and his colleagues who pushed the Great Barrington Declaration, which said, don't impose these generalized lockdowns, try to focus your efforts on the most vulnerable groups, groups like the elderly that we knew right from the start were far more vulnerable that had a uh, infection mortality rate that was a thousand times higher than younger people, instead of following them, those people were vilified because they were going against the orthodoxy. They were going against the religious zealots who said, we have to lock down. That's the way to go. Listen to everything uh, you know that, that certain saints in Washington were saying. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, we, we had a terrible economic downturn, terrible econo educational outcomes uh, because we precisely because we were not following the science. We were pretending it was the science and that became the religious dogma.
Yeah, the religiosity, and it's all a clear. Not, not only the lack of developmental resources for kids in education, but the mental health consequences were absolutely predictable, hundred percent predictable in the risk reward analysis about what they were doing that they did not take into consideration. But now that I've been seeing email chains and talking to people who were actually in the rooms when these decisions were being being made, clearly there were rogues. They were evangelical rogues that went off and did, did whatever they wanted and did not have the full support of the commission that was being organized there in Washington. And that's, I think we're going to find out more about that as time goes on. And the email chain suggests that while there was no evidence based for lockdowns, somehow the leaders were hoodwinked by the Chinese Communist Party and the policies they carried out there and convinced our leaders that they were absolutely uh, fail-safe, uh, which was any any physician should have known that a respiratory virus cannot be contained that way. But uh, to me, right. that's sort of what happened. Do you, do you have any other insights into that? No, I mean, the, the, from the outset, no one knew what was going on in China. And anyone who thought they did was was really absurd. It was ridiculous to think that, that you did. And of course, we still don't know the, the origin of the virus. So that's, a, that's a kind of a different story, but really the same story. Uh, and now you're seeing mm -hmm. just the reverse. China has finally figured out that, hey, maybe this complete lockdown stuff doesn't work. Uh, and you're seeing hundreds of thousands of illnesses and deaths. And those are just the ones they're acknowledging. Uh, it's right, probably substantially higher. You know, they probably had many more cases and deaths initially than they told us about. And they probably have many more cases and deaths now that they're not telling us about. But anyone who trusted that as, as, a, uh, a, as an example of what we should follow in this country was foolish from the get-go. And anyone who I, said 100%, hey, yeah. that was vilified. But you'll find that, you know, or destroyed. states... Right. Yeah. Well, destroyed. But states like Florida, for example, where they actually had a, a common sense governor, Governor DeSantis, who very early on relaxed the lockdowns and then forbade school districts from imposing some of these mitigation measures and required that they stayed open. They did just as well. In fact, and on educational economic grounds, they did much better. So I think we have our answers, and this is this has been studied innumerable times now, and including this this study we have coming out, uh, and you know we show that people who lived in those in those states didn't care for it. They many of them moved out of the lockdown states and moved to the the freer states. Is there anything we should be doing as a profession? Is there is there you know do, are we? We, we have a tendency not to stand up for ourselves. Is there something we should be doing? Well, look, I think there has been something that you were pointing out. There's been uh, a, a consolidation in medicine, for want of a better term, um, where individual practitioners are a vanishing breed. Uh, everyone is now part of a, a bigger group, and they're being bought up by hospitals. Uh, and those hospitals are merging. So you have decreasing numbers of competitors, decreasing numbers of independent practitioners, uh, with the result that everyone becomes an employee. And when you're an employee rather than a professional, you're serving two masters. And it becomes harder for individual physicians to be effective advocates for their patients. 
And, and, and I think that's a disturbing trend. And if, if the Biden administration really wants to do something good in the antitrust sphere, why don't they start looking at, at consolidation in, in hospitals and consolidation in healthcare and do something to reverse that? I think it will be to everyone's benefit, to patients' benefits, to physicians' benefits, and to the taxpayers' benefits who won't be overpaying for monopolistic hospital systems. Dr. Zimberg, I appreciate it. Is there anything else you'd like to say before uh, we wrap this up? Well, look, I, I hope uh, you know that efforts of people like you and the readers of the Wall Street Journal and, and Senator Johnson with his right to treat bill will be successful and this can be reversed and we can kind of restore the uh, sanctity of the physician-patient relationship and the ability of physicians to be good advocates for their patients and patients to take advantage of that. I'm hopeful. Uh, it may take another few years to do it, but I remain an optimist. Well, I, I appreciate the optimism. I appreciate your efforts. Appreciate uh, your articles. It's cei.org. Anywhere else you'd like to send people? They can look at the Paragon Health Institute, too where I'm the, as I mentioned, I'm the director of one of the initiatives. Excellent. Thank you so much, sir. And for the rest of you, we will come back with calls after this. Genucel has so many products that Susan and I love. Their XV Moisturizer locks in moisture, making dry spots a thing of the past, which is especially great with the colder weather, of course. And with the immediate effects, too, you can see these results in as little as 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. Susan loves Genucel's Vitamin C Serum, the new deep correcting serum with lactic acid that hydrates your skin and reduces fine lines while preventing future wrinkles from forming. Don't believe me? Listen to Susan. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. Take advantage of this New Year's promotion by going to GenuCell.com and getting 60% off now with a complimentary gift set when you subscribe to my favorite package at GenuCell.com. All orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the season. Use code DREW at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That is genucel.com slash DREW, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. My guest is Philip Patrick. He is a precious metal specialist, trains at University of Redlands. He has spent years as a wealth manager at Citigroup, and his current position is with Birch Gold Group. So gold has always been uh, somewhat of a safe haven, particularly in times of great turmoil. Uh, much like our present moment, I imagine. Gold has always traditionally been a safe haven asset. Gold specifically has, has always been about wealth preservation, right? Gold has always held its buying power. You can look at as far back as you'd like in history. In biblical times, one ounce of gold would buy somebody 400 loaves of bread. And today it does the same thing. So it's a store of value. But I would say in times like this, as you mentioned, it's particularly important when you're dealing with things like 40-year high inflation, uh, 
you know, the air that's coming out of a stock market bubble, these times in particular tend to drive gold and silver up quite significantly. If things are different, the solution needs to be different as well. So I encourage everyone to get informed. And we have a lot of good information here to help your listeners. Just a reminder, I am not a financial advisor and I do not give out financial advice nor investing advice. Birch Gold has an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of satisfied customers. Check them out now. Visit birchgold.com slash Drew and secure your future with gold. Do it now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. All right. We're uh, on Restream watching your comments. And of course, we're out on the Twitter spaces taking your calls. And, support uh, our sponsors that support the show. Oh, yes. Yeah, hey, Drew, did you know that gold's gone up 300 points since we started advertising? For, for I had seen that. It must have been because of your foresight. I don't know. So. I don't know. I know Genius had some big sales, but thank you to everybody who's uh, supported our sponsors. We're even going to have a guest on because, and they said that if I had them on, they would buy some Genius <laughs> uh, Let me bring Janice up here. Raise your hand if you want to Twitter spaces. We're taking your calls there. We may have some interesting Twitter Spaces news coming up one of these days soon. We'll let you guys know if that happens. Uh, but raise your hand, and then I just bring you up. You have to unmute your mic there, Janice, and uh, have at it. There you are. Hi. Uh, hey um, I know a lot of people, and including myself, um, with all the stuff, a lot of us seeing the Pfizer exec over in the UK that immediately, you know, admitted they did not test for the vaccine for transmission and all that. We don't know where the oh, communication breakdown occurred, whether it was Pfizer to the government, the government to the health officials, or so on. But um, a lot of people feel that we've been deceived about the effectiveness of the shot. Okay. Um, we, and where where should our anger be directed at? Is it at Pfizer? Is uh, it that's a, that's a, 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 yeah, Jess, I'm going to put you on hold because you're, you're, if you're using is, your speakerphone, turn it to like, oh, oh can you use yeah. it to your regular phone? Maybe that'll be better. Let's see. Yeah, take it off speakerphone. Is that better? Hold on. I'll try turning this off. It's a really interesting question, though. I mean, who should we piss at? Um, I, I think you should be pissed at anyone. The, all right, it's his concern. Yeah, it's oh. Just, oh. Is that better? You're much better, but You're I'm not going better, back. But I'm not going back. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just mute yourself. Okay, He'll just mute you. yourself. He'll talk to you. All right, I'm going to mute, mute her. Uh, so, so it's a great question. Now, who should we be pissed at? So. The drug companies just do what the drug companies do. You know what I mean? I, I mean, they see a market. They're trying. They think they have a good product. They stand by it. They did their research. The research seems a little that there might be some wrinkles in there that we need to revisit. 
mostly, so think about it this way, mostly the research that was done was beneath the standard that we would normally maintain to approve a vaccine. Now, what you should be asking for is, okay, we was an emergency, we rolled it out, got it, did what we had to do, a little more, took a little more danger than usual. Now let's roll back and fill in what we should have done in the first place. A, no one's doing that. B, there are questions. And rather than addressing and answering these questions, all you get from your regulatory organizations, your government, whether you said something about the UK, I don't know if you're there or here, is get the vaccine, get the vaccine, get the vaccine, which seems unsophisticated, disingenuine. You have to be able to be open to two thoughts. You gotta be open to two thoughts. That maybe three thoughts. One, it was an emergency. We rolled this thing out fast and took a lot of risks that we wouldn't normally take. Two, turned out it helped older people. The data is looking really good for older people without a lot of adverse event. Now, might we have to revise that? We might, of course. But it looks like this was very helpful to older people. And that was the group that was whose lives were endangered. That's whom we really needed to help. And it looks like we did. It looks like we did. Should we continue to vaccinate them? I don't, I don't see the evidence for that, but, but you know, my clinical experience has been nobody got hurt. A lot of people got help. That's been my experience. I don't see the advantage of continuing to vaccinate just yet. Anybody. Now you're because 30... it doesn't work with the new variant. Yeah, but they could come up with a, a you know, a new variant. Very and quickly, then but it may be causing problems with the booster. Not there, the there's concerns that if there are going to be side effects, we might see it. And there are concerns that it has an inverse relationship to preventing the virus actually it actually make you might make you more likely if right you it doesn't far. keep you from getting sick and we know for sure everybody else doesn't keep you from getting sick it doesn't keep you from transmitting which is what most people are angry with that they were fed that line as the justification for horrific mandates that were discriminatory i would like a somebody to look back on all this and to apologize where it's appropriate that's what our government should do it never does doesn't seem to be capable of doing it and answer the questions about what's going on in the younger populations. Are there increase in all cause mortality? Is there more sudden death? Maybe it's slight, maybe it's a lot, maybe it's a little, I don't know. And what's causing it? Is it COVID? Is it vaccine? Is it COVID plus vaccine? What is it? They won't even ask the question. You should, that you should be angry. To me, the sum total, you should be angry at these regulatory agencies for for pushing things that they don't have the science to substantiate their position and having done lots of things wrong that they should be looking back on and sort of acknowledging and apologizing so we don't make those mistakes again seems humbly to me call me crazy uh let's see russell here russell go ahead we hear you Hello, hey there. Dr. Drew. Yeah. Hey, um, I had a quick question about the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any data to suggest there are differences in the uh, reported adverse effects because it's not M mRNA? They took it off very quickly because of very few bad events. <laughs> Just a few hundred, few dozen. I think ultimately there were a few hundred. And I was one of these people. I, I had a bad reaction to it. Uh, and they took it down very quickly. Uh, okay. Why? What, 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 are you, what are you thinking? 
Oh, no, I was just uh, with some of the questions around the mRNA vaccines. I got the Johnson and Johnson. That's the only one I got. I got it twice. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering if there were less adverse effects long term. We um, it's not, not at all been studied. It seems to be a closed book on that one. And uh, they're not even asking the questions about mRNA and long term effects really either. That, that I don't know that anyone's really looking into that meaningfully. So uh, these are all sort of unanswered question, but it was a consumptive coagulopathy and a transverse sinus thrombosis that was really triggering the concern with the J&J &J vaccine. You might look, if you, if you come, we come a time when we need another vaccine, Covaxin is an excellent vaccine. It's been approved finally here. Now it has to be manufactured, but that's the vaccine I would recommend and I would take, um, you know, if you're in the younger populations particularly. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I just would like to know more about, I'd like to understand what's going on. There's so many questions still. Now, there was an article, I just read a giant review article today on the pathophysiology around COVID, and it was good. It was a very good article. It was very thorough about things like uh, myocarditis and uh, clotting problems and the cytokine storm. And I think we know that COVID does that. The question is, does post-COVID do that? For how long does it do that? Those are the guys, they really didn't have a time horizon on these things, which are really the questions that need to be answered. In other words, should we be doing something to mitigate risks over time once somebody's had COVID? Uh, this is mm -mm, Deb, I guess it's Deb. Your hand is up, but you're, there you are. Hi there. Hi there. My, I have two questions. Um, have they changed or tweaked the formula from the very beginning formula? Number one, that's the first question. What, what do you mean by question, formula? What do you mean by formula? Because they have differing, the, we now have a bivalent vaccine, we have different vaccines, but they haven't changed the, the technology. Okay, technology. Okay, it, it just seems like a lot of this is happening this past year as far as the sudden deaths goes. And it didn't seem like that was happening the first year of the vaccine. So that's why I was wondering if they changed the, you calling it technology, I'm calling it a formula. No, but there are people that have suggested that the boosters have been more the problem than the vaccine, the original vaccine series. There is da data like that flying around. I don't know what to believe yet. Uh, again, the medical literature is all over the place on almost any topic related to COVID right now. Uh, but it it does appear, originally the big concern for myocarditis was act, after the second Moderna vaccine. Again, that's for whatever reason what seemed to, you know, Moderna is a higher concentration of the, of the, of the vaccine essentially. And the, the thinking was, well, it's just creating a worse reaction. That's why we're seeing the myocarditis. But then they started seeing it after the Pfizer booster as well and after the Pfizer initial series. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of all that. Uh, again, it, is it and is it in people who've had COVID that are getting the reaction? Because pretty much everyone's had uh, Omicron now. And how much risk should we take given that Omicron is pretty mild illness in the vast majority of cases, particularly in young people? The, these are the questions that have to be answered and have not been yet. So very concerning. Uh, this is Sibilia. I'm getting that right. Great, Laura. I'm sorry, I was connecting. Sibila. Uh, thank you for letting me speak. Um, I have a muscle activation syndrome, 
and I know it's a new condition that was recently added to the codes and uh, it's been only really studied for the last uh, 20 years. But uh, part of that um, study was also rediscovering um, um, systemic muscle cystosis and how it can progress from um, muscle activation syndrome, so um, conditions to um, that, those kind of um, uh, neoplasms. So, how can I help um, you today? What's the question? One of the things that I have been noticing is that um, I, I wasn't uh, vaccinated, but when I had COVID, my muscle activation syndrome went into complete remission. Remission? And, uh, That's yes. interesting. But when I went away, when I actually uh, started feeling better, my muscle activation symptoms, uh, especially the GI symptoms, came back, uh, the uh, uh, IBSD and everything else. So uh, I know Dr. Afrin has uh, done some study on long COVID and muscle activation syndrome, and there have been some research on uh, that was uh, just looking at uh, how COVID affected people with um, muscle activation syndrome that have shown also uh, similar other uh, people having uh, gone to remission with uh, even things like asthma. So it might be worth uh, looking into those uh, channels. Just uh, just wanted to share okay. that and Very I'll post a link to that as well. Very interesting. Maybe somebody who knows something about that will will uh, will take a look into that. That's an excellent idea. Uh, whoops, Josh, we're going to get you up here. Josh, what's going on? Hey, Dr. Drew. Hey there. Um, you know, it's really interesting listening to you about standard of care. And I was thinking in mental health, the standard of care um, is the CBT, DBT. And, um, you know, psychoanalysts look at that and they say, this isn't good enough. And I know from my experience looking at both psychoanalysts, I'm not in psychology, but mm -hmm. looking at both psychoanalysts and CBT, which is the standard of care, um, the standard of care feels like a cult. So the CBT feels very sort of, it doesn't really feel like there's cure there. I mean, there's, there's, yeah. Yeah. there's short-term cure, there's right. short-term cure. So if you go to, you know, if you're in psychoanalysis five times a week, so, so you know, for five years. So Josh, think this through. So yeah, you go to, let's say you go three times a week for five years to improve your symptomatology versus you go for CBT once or twice a week for a month and your symptoms are resolved for the moment. Who, benefit, right. who benefits from the most from one paradigm versus the other? Well, obviously, CBT is getting money here. Right, the, ins and the, the insurers. The insurance. The, the insurers. Yeah, the yeah. insurance. So they dictate. They dictate what kinds of care right. is possible. And you notice that if somebody's going to get psychoanalysis, that's sort of looked at as like more um, recreational or, or, or spiritual development or something. And you pay cash. But for it this. changes. You pay you. cash for it. Yes. It really. Of course, it does. It really changes. It really works. It uh, really does work. Well, it, it. So anyway, you would pay cash for that. But but to your point, it, there's a really interesting history here. I, I've told you before to please look into this history. There's a book by Dr. Lieberman called Shrink. I strongly recommend you read it because it discuss, discusses the history of how American psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis dominated psychiatry for 50 years or 35 years anyway, here, well, maybe 50 years in the United States 
unlike in any other country in the world. People have this fantasy that some like in Austria and Germany or France, that psychoanalysis was the dominant thing. It was popular in those places, but they dominated here. And they made lots of mistakes. They hurt lots of people. They destroyed the, Depart the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, which um, they destroyed the state hospital system. They, they, were, they were the first, uh, they became actually the first post-structuralist, I think. They destroyed the state hospital system. They destroyed so much in the name of their um, wisdom as, as psychoanalysts. Um, and it's, uh, I will tell you just personally, it's one of the reasons I don't go, go become a subject in psychoanalysis as much as it fascinates me. I've looked at what psychoanalysts have done, and I'm not impressed. In any event, it took a long time before medicine, again, returned to American psychiatry. And then there became an overzealotry around medication because there was this renewed push for psychiatrists to be doctors, and doctors used pharmacology to affect physiology. And the physiology of the brain was the big, you know, sort of um, the, the call of the day and the decade of the brain back in the 90s particularly. Uh, I'm not sure what the name is here. You guys have lots of interesting uh, screen names. This is never... Never again is now. <laughs> Hi there. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Dr. Drew. My name is Tina. Hi, Tina. Um, first of all, I wanted to just say I really enjoyed the interview you did with Edward Dowd. I think mm. the actuarial data is probably some of the most solid data we can look at to see um, the beginnings of, you know. What's going on. Some, yeah. yeah. So I um, have a degree in biology. Mm. I worked in research for five years. And then I worked in cardi um, pharmaceutical sales for 12 for a major player mm -hmm. and very much understand package inserts, adverse events, contraindications, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, I also, during the time I was in pharmaceutical sales, understood the very real concern of black box warnings mm -hmm. and not to give things to pregnant women. Mm -hmm. um, my specialty was in cardiovascular drugs. My son was coerced to get vaccinated. He was 18. He was a high school athlete, and after the second shot, he had major cardiovascular uh, adverse events, and we were gaslit for almost a year. By, by whom? So who who gaslit you? The, the medical community. It couldn't have been the vaccine. He right. must have had this one before, but as a varsity football player and an athlete all his life, he had that, you know— he had to have uh, clearance and exams, and he went from being a robust six foot three, two hundred and thirty pound lineman to clutching his chest and barely able to take out the trash and in extreme pain. And this, um, you know, he's now diagnosed. And this was early twenty twenty one. He was high school job was at a retirement home, so that is why an eighteen year old was vaccinated very early in the game. So my my point is this. Well, let me, I, I, before you make your point, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Yeah. Was he was sure. that Moderna? Did he get the Moderna? It was vaccine? Pfizer. And it, it was, was Pfizer. It, and was the reaction after the second or after the booster? After the second, he's only and, vaccinated twice, and, and it was almost within hours and within days. And and you know, I I have definitely seen this a, a number of times, and it's exactly what you're describing, and it's been in older and younger people. This and this is not. I'm not talking about diagnosed myocarditis. I'm talking about this, I don't know what else to call it, but long COVID. People get weak, they can't walk, they get short of breath, they get chest pain, they can't, they can't go a block down the street for many, many months. It usually gets better, 
but it, it is disabling for long periods of time. And I've seen quite a bit of this. So uh, I'm just mortified that your son was gaslit about it. It's just awful. Here he is suffering oh. with this. Well, it, yeah, he would he would be in the ER, uh, and I was not allowed to be with him. Mm. And so I would, you know, sit in the parking lot sometimes till three, four, five in the morning, and he would be sent away. Telling they were telling him he was having panic attacks. Oh boy! Um, and you know, because the EKGs were coming back normal, nobody, right. you know, they didn't want to look and do things like D-dimer tests or troponins. It right. took a naturopathic doctor. Um, about eight, nine months later to finally step in and diagnose and treat. And, and by the way, so, not, not that we would have been able to do anything diagnostically because there really isn't a set of diagnostic criteria for this yet. But but I, that's why I sort of call it, you know, vaccine-induced long COVID because it's the only way I can understand it. I've been sending cases like your son's over to Dr. Patterson and they've been doing a lot of the inflammatory markers in the brain and find significant correlation between the vaccine long COVID and the COVID long COVID. So these things are biologically looking similar many times. Yes. I will also say that, so I sold ACE inhibitors as one of the mm -hmm. portfolio, and you're familiar with the ACE cough. Mm -hmm. I myself had COVID in early 2021, and it was very strange the way the fever progressed over the course of several days. And the cough I had immediately reminded me of an ACE cough. Mm -hmm. So my mind yeah. went into... There was a cardiovascular. This is a cardiovascular. Well, you know, I, and I will tell you, I had the same reaction. I was very sick with a alpha or delta. Don't really want which one, but I was. I had a fever of over 102. I was climbing stairs, and I took my pulse, and it was 60. And I thought, oh, this thing gets the heart. There's, there's no doubt about it. So something is happening in my heart. I don't know what. Maybe it's just the AV node, mm -hmm. but this is definitely cardiac active in the heart. Absolutely. And my yeah. son, you know, could have, be sitting, and you know, he went like I said, you know, football athlete on the line. Um, yeah, you know, I, I get it. I, 110, you, you might you, know, you, you might look at the interview we did with Dr. Ryan Cole, who's trying to figure out the pathophysiology oh, of all this. Did you see that? I've, yeah, I did. Yeah. I've listened to Dr. Malone, McCullough. Mm. I was on this in early 2021, and mm. my greatest frustration was not being able to convince others to look at this critically and clinically. They thought, "What? Who am I to speak? I'm just, you know, a, a mom. My degree in biology did not." carry weight against yeah. the message from Fauci, CDC, the WHO, et cetera. So to, you know, another thing that really frustrated me was that when I looked for the package insert, I asked multiple pharmacists, they didn't have a copy of the package insert, which meant to me, tell me informed consent couldn't be given. Yeah. And I looked around and these shots, you know, because you don't know what the adverse events, contraindications, et cetera, are. Yeah. And none of the physicians could answer that question either. And I kept saying, what would the Hippocratic Oath of first do no harm? And we essentially have sacrificed tens of thousands of young adults and children right. at so, the altar of big pharma for money. Pfizer's profits are through the roof. And we're going to see thousands and millions of people suffer. And my son, I, I look at my son as a canary in the coal mine. Mm. And... I am. I want to applaud you for bringing this into the mainstream. I suspect you're having to hold back somewhat. I hope I'm saying that isn't problematic. No, but I, I want people I, I, to recognize. I, 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 I'm, I'm actually not holding back because I, I really feel like certainty is the enemy. It, 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 we got to be prepared to, to accept the science as it comes. The, the only thing I'm having trouble with right now is that it's not coming. They're not asking the questions, and that's astonishing to me. I mean, just... What 
what knocked Demar down at, at the Buffalo game? Tell us. Yeah. What was that? He's fine well, now. What was it? And then this issue you brought up, which is the most troubling, and I don't know if you've heard me talking about it, but I've been saying it for six months now. How in the world am I supposed to give informed consent? And by the way, if I even attempted in California, I could lose my license because we have this AB 2098 that prevents yeah. us from saying anything other than the so-called standard of care. Which is a violation of the Constitution, First Amendment. I mean, you know, so I, I'm looking at all of this and I can only come to one conclusion. COVID was not, the vaccine was not introduced to help us with COVID. COVID was introduced to inject as many people potentially with this agent. Well, and that, that puts me in the conspiracy realm. Yeah. But everything from the get-go, I've been looking at follow the money. Yeah. Well, listen, and I, I am. I, I would, uh, I, I understand why you would say this. I, I would caution you to try to stay with the evidence. And I understand why you would feel this way. I mean, I, I get it. And uh, Susan, I think you feel this way sometimes too, but. But oh, I mean, it's a mother's cry for help, too. Right, it's like, right. I mean, I'm just, I have three kids and I didn't want them to have the vaccine. We were going to travel and, and I had to wait until they lifted the mandate to have that booster to get on an airplane. And only one of my kids got it, but I, I was just so not, I, I didn't want to get another one and Drew didn't want to, you know, he obviously has the worst response so far, but it's just like no, it, there's nobody listening. It's it, it's the weirdest thing. Well, but but but, yeah, but let me just say, it's, what's your name again? Is it Tina? It's Tina, Tina. and Tina. I would say that people have been asking the question. There are thousands of doctors asking the questions, like McCullough, like Malone, yeah. like Jessica Rose, like Jennifer Margulis, like the you know Dr. Corey. There there have been brave doctors asking this, and yet the the, the marginalization of their voices, mm -hmm. the 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 downplaying of their questions, the the character assassinations yeah. Yeah, that yeah. they've endured. We've all been there. So yeah. so, so, so here so here are the people I want you to keep an eye. Here's what I want you to do, because I want to yeah. I want to dampen your your you're going in a direction. I want to kind of dampen it. Which well, is, I, I like her. I, I like her too, but I but I'm but I but I think <laughs> I, I think she has the capability to cre remain give herself a more sophisticated view of the landscape, and that you know John Campbell's a great resource. You can listen yes. to his thing. Molhatra, yes. Doctor Molhatra yep. is asking great questions. Look, follow what he's doing. Everyone gets a little excited when they start realizing when they start seeing what's going on. Everyone needs to kind of calm down. But I would urge you in particular to look at all the email stuff that's come out on the Twitter files in the yep. last couple of weeks, because yep. if you really follow that, it takes you away from the money and back into the world of power and evangelism. People who want to I be- I think it's all connected. It, I think it it's may all be, it, it may be, and certainly drug companies, as you know, as someone to work for them, they always blow wind into the sales of whatever doctors are doing and manipulate it and push it, but it's the doctors that start it and do it. Think about it, when you're back when you were, you know, before you could foist a particular ACE inhibitor on them, on anybody, those doctors had been thinking about it, reading the literature, had their, you know, peers in academic positions pushing them, you know, before they started listening to you. And then, you know, uh, go ahead. I, I launched a drug, multiple drugs. I mm -hmm. launched multiple drugs, but I launched a, a drug for irritable bowel syndrome. And we had a handful of side effects. And that drug was pulled from the market. I know, I didn't like that drug. And I, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. That the, the Z drugs, yep, yep. the Z. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. When it worked, it worked very well. But Mm -hmm. when it came out with a few side effects, and this is the other thing that is really troublesome to me, there is no medical liability or accountability with big pharma when it comes to vaccines. If you have a reaction, you are SOL. And 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 the number of reported adverse events with this, with these mRNA shots, and I'm not calling them vaccines, I'm calling them shots Mm -hmm. because they do not align with the traditional definition of a vaccine, the side effects reported in VAERS is through the roof. Mm -hmm. And that's another marker. Safety markers have been completely overlooked by the three-digit agencies. Mm -hmm. And that is... I'd like an answer. I'd like an answer for that. And and if it is because of the coziness with the drug company, uh, I would... That's what Robert Kennedy thinks. I I don't know. There is a coziness there. Yes, I agree. But I, I, it, I don't know. It, it, I just, my, my only experience with this is the opioid crisis. And it just, it was a little bit different. The drug companies got blamed in the end. And let's be fair, they ended up taking the heat for it, but it was really my peers that perpetrated the whole thing. Thank you, Tina. I really appreciate your calls. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Susan, should we kind of wrap things up here? Are we, how are we? Take another call. All right. More call. We'll take somebody named Susan. How about and then that? you'll be mad at me because I said that. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm okay with it. Oh, I, I, the person I asked just just disappeared. This is. I feel like I'm I'm coming out. I'm, I I like hearing these calls this week. This is Zeus. There you are. You gotta unmute yourself. Hey, hey there. Hey, uh, Doctor Drew, I had a question for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, science is a very important part of this whole thing i'm it obviously has been from the beginning but scientific experimentation right it, i mean whenever you're doing an experiment your whole goal is to try to eliminate down to one variable right to control as many variables as you can you're talking about really clinical science right and so you want to control sure. as many variables as possible yeah so and i look uh, let me preface this by saying i'm just a midwestern pleb i'm uh, i'm nobody but you know, I did go to school and I do understand science to an extent. Um, why in this pandemic, like no other, did we increase the amount of potential variables by allowing the counter for deaths to become, to, to potentially have a lot of different things? We weren't dying of COVID, but it was dying with COVID. And I mean, wouldn't that introduce a lot more potential variables? And be flawed science? Uh, for sure, right? Because we don't know what we're looking at if we're looking at deaths, right? You, you think you're looking at one thing, but there may be other things in that bucket of so-called deaths from COVID. And that adulterates the entire data set. But the reason, in my opinion, that happened is there was a general agreement on behalf of insurers and hospitals and the government that they were going to call a lot of things COVID in order to keep the hospitals open. Otherwise, thousands of hospitals would have not been able to operate and kept them and closed them. So things that were sort of COVID adjacent got COVID money. And that was the motivation for that. But there was sort of a, it was more than a wink and a nod. There was an agreement that that would sort of be how we keep the hospitals open. Problem is it just kept going. And uh, Well, let me ask you this then. So if we can agree that there was another motive uh, that wasn't necessarily science, the exact true science of it, mm-hmm. then how can we at this point, and, and I just heard you say, and I'm, I agree with you, that 
you know, you're waiting for this science to come out and you want to speak and the, the scientific, you know, what, what, what does the science say, but how are we ever going to get that answer? And, and how can we trust anyone with the doctor's credentials, with science credential, with, as a researcher, as, yeah. as a scientist? When I didn't see science, I saw I saw ideology. I saw a Scientologist. Yeah. Yeah. I saw people chasing religion. Yeah. I didn't see the scientific experiments. I didn't see that process being executed. Why should I believe that that's going to happen moving forward? My friend, uh, you unfortunately represent what is one of the will be one of the great fallouts of this entire experience. Uh, you deserve more. You should ask for more, but I totally understand how you feel and you are not alone. I don't, I don't feel that way. I'm not saying I'm, I'm with you, but I understand why you would feel that way. And millions of people do. And that may be one of the greatest. There are so many, so many untoward fallouts from this last three years. That is just one. And uh, my hope is that at least the the medical community can reestablish some sense of trust in what uh, and grow a pair. You know, what we're doing. How dare you? What's Not your, you. What is your point now? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, we got to kind of wrap up here because um, you and I have a bunch of work to do, Susan. So uh, we appreciate all yeah. the effort. Caleb has revised the website, so please do take a look at that. It's yeah, we have a lightning fast. He spent it. He nearly killed himself doing it. <laughs> yes, uh, baby's still safe though. Baby is still safe. <laughs> oh yeah, he's, so he's all good. good. Oh yeah, he lived uh, through it. Uh, and let's can we go through the the week schedule here a little bit? Oh yeah, um, we we got we got a lot of people lined up. Yeah, it's a you're lot very of stuff popular, Doctor Drew. Yeah, so we have uh, where's my where's my calendar? So let's see. Can you we help have, me? Uh, there we are. Uh, we have Jeffrey Tucker. That's tomorrow, tomorrow. with Kelly. We're Kelly's doing a we're doing a special non-COVID. More political. Mm, it kind of goes into well, COVID. Well, it is a COVID, bit. but it's not a medical professional. He wrote an article. I said, I want to talk to this guy. It sounded interesting. So we're doing uh, a fifth show for the month, and we're going to maybe one day have a, a, a what would she call it? A, a de fuck it bucket? An unfuck it bucket. Unfuck we're going to start <laughs> focusing on how to unfuck it. That, that is what we are doing. And then on Wednesday, we're going to be a little bit later. We're going to be at four o'clock. With Richard Orso. Richard Orso. And uh, he should be very interesting. Then we're not here. Th we're going to do Thursday? Yeah, also? I have a Thursday. Not this Thursday. Thursday. Jeff D. Oh, shoot. No, we're, yeah, we can not, we're not doing <laughs> This is the Thursday we can't yeah. do. Yeah. That's right. And then we oh, have no. next week. I booked it, though. Sorry, okay. Caleb. <laughs> Dr. Ryan Cole coming back here on the 1st. He's back with us again. And then the following well, week. Well, we have uh, Del Bigtree on Tuesday. Brooke Jackson on February 22nd. Oh. We got a lot of stuff coming. These are very interesting people. And I didn't know Del Bigtree was confirmed. Oh, you know what? Deist is on the 2nd. Sorry. Okay. That's the guy. Yeah. Okay. The the gold specialist. I want to He's a more well, about that. She keeps saying gold specialist. He's from the Mises Institute. And we're going to have a little talk about economics and, you know, ideologies around economics and versus I, what the evidence suggests, uh, how humans actually, how he, homo economicus actually works. Yeah. And Drew likes that stuff. Mm -hmm. I am really interested in it. And also, um, sorry, I screwed up the date, but I'm trying to get my head back after this crazy week. Um, and then I didn't know, we uh, have... I didn't know Del Bigtree was confirmed yet, but everyone would would probably be very excited to see him on the show coming up. So I guess that is confirmed now. I'll put that on the list soon. Yes, it is. And one of our uh, fans requested him and said that he gave us a shout out and she thinks that Drew and, and he would have a good, um, good chat. So. And 
he they've been trying to be on the show for a long time and he has a big he has a lot of stuff coming out. So um Senator Ron Johnson is on the eighth and um we're working on uh Susan, Susan is, is booking actively. Susan is making Schellenberger for the seventh. <laughs> Michael Schellenberger. No, it's true. He's I think he's booked. I mean I have I, him in the calendar. Schellenberger? So. The, the senator the and yes we do okay. no no Je- Johnson Ron on the eighth and then if we I, also have may, Jackson on the twenty second those three big names that Susan just dropped <laughs> I don't know if we were supposed to announce those yet so just FYI why not okay. <laughs> I don't why not? I don't have that confirmed in my calendar but so, he is a senator so so we will no I I got it from Kelly she's been she's okay been good good <laughs> okay over there okay so no. we will confirm. We will confirm. Don't we? Don't waste everybody's time. Thank you for being here. Thank you we guys. We got some on good the ones coming. Uh, you guys have been nice. And, uh, I've been seeing your comments over there, and I've tried to ring in here and there, and then also over at the restream. How's that been at uh, the rants, the Rumble rants? Everything they're okay? they're over there controlling themselves. I love that. That's what they said. I said they. I saw that they said they were doing that, and they did. And I appreciate that. They're not being. Uh, we gotta we gotta get the unfuck it bucket thing together on our fifth show for Kelly. The, yeah. We want, to, we want to have a segment called the Unfuck It Bucket, which, which we were laughing <laughs> how at. How do we unfuck it? Right. In other words, how do we undo some of the things that have been done by all this? And how do we get things, get the our compass going in the right direction for everybody again? Get, the, get people healthy and happy and moving in the right direction. So we will look forward to more of that. And uh, we'll see you. Sorry, that Kel- Susan, what's that? If you're listening, thank you, Emily Barsh. Emily Barsh, thank you for your bookings and help and producing. It's been great. Tomorrow is 4 o'clock Pacific time. We will see you then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Thank <laughs> you.